0: Hello, and welcome to SpyCast from the Secret Files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Mark Stout, historian of the museum. I'm a Ph.D. author and historian who served for 13 years as an analyst in the U.S. intelligence community. Every month, the museum brings you interesting talks with authors, scholars, and practitioners who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. We're joined today by Yevgeny Morozov, who is one of the world's leading analysts of the political implications of the Internet and social media. Uh, Yevgeny is a native of Belarus originally, and he wears, well, wears many hats. He's a contributing editor to Foreign Policy and Boston Review. He's a fellow at the New America Foundation here in Washington. And also at present, uh, he's actually hanging his hat out at Stanford University, my old stomping grounds, at something called the Center for Democracy, Development, and the Rule of Law. Uh, Yevgeny is also the author of a new book just out, The Net Delusion The Dark Side of Internet Freedom, which should be in fine bookstores everywhere. Um, Yevgeny, welcome. Good to be here. Um, Yevgeny, many people are very optimistic about the potential of the Internet and of social media to bring about openness and democracy in authoritarian countries. And these people have often been called cyber utopians. Uh, one might almost say, however, that you're a cyber dystopian. Can you tell us a little bit about how you
1: came to that? Um, Uh, somewhat unusual and unpopular even point of view yes I don't think that either cyber utopians or cyber dystopians is actually a compliment Uh, (laughs) so uh, I I don't think there are people who are identifying themselves as cyber utopians it normally uh, comes from uh, their critics Um, I myself, I would say, actually started as uh, a cyber-utopian myself. I I come from Belarus, as you've mentioned, so I've always been interested in the questions of democratization, and particularly in authoritarian states, as Belarus happens to be one, uh, right in the center of Europe. And uh, to me, when blogs and social networks and this entire Web 2.0 you know, phenomenon uh, began emerging. I immediately grasped that there would be political implications. And uh, uh, if if you if you remember back in say 2004, there was still a lot of enthusiasm about the impact that new media was having on politics in this country. In part because of the presidential elections and Howard Dean's use of new media. And uh, the same year, the, the where there was the famous uh, you know Orange Revolution. Slightly later, there was a Orange Revolution in Ukraine, where supposedly text messaging uh, played some role in mobilizing people, and blogs also played a certain role in mobilizing people and getting them out onto the streets. So, as I put two and two together, it uh, became uh, clear that uh, you know blogs. And social networks would also probably be helping the causes of democracy in a country like Belarus. So I actually joined uh, an NGO, a Western-based and funded NGO called Transitions Online, which was actually very active in uh, using new media. Uh, in the former Soviet space, uh, virtual not just the Soviet Union, but you know the entire satellite, uh, you know uh, territories, so they were active in almost 30 countries. And I became their director of new media. It was actually my job to, uh, you know, travel uh, to places like Central Asia with the Caucasus and meet with bloggers and activists and train them how to use new media, blogs, social networks, wikis, mashups, uh, various. Maps and data visualizations uh, to basically uh you know uh, push for change, whether it's through campaigning or whether it's by showing corruption inside the government you know all sorts of things were up for grabs uh, and I spent two and a half three years doing that and at some point I realized that. Uh, most of our projects were just utterly ineffective. Uh, Some of our projects were actually having a negative effect on uh, the countries we were present in, not least because they were providing wrong incentives to bloggers and, you know, new media entrepreneurs who may otherwise be working on their own. And it's a classical moral hazard you get with any economic development projects. you know it's almost a problem that is very common you know to, to many projects in Africa where you know a big development institution funded by Western entities comes in and they want to do a lot of social innovation. they end up putting all of the social innovators on a salary and those innovators no longer want to innovate on their own and they're interested in applying for more and more grants just to you know uh, enjoy the lifestyle they got addicted to. So I, I, I saw that part of the problem, but I also began noticing that the governments themselves were actually outsmarting us at at our own game. Many of them were not just censoring the Internet, they were also setting up blogs uh, in order to promote uh, their own ideology online. Some of them were... Using uh, various data mining techniques to engage in surveillance, they're actually tracking many of the dissidents. Many of them are purchasing technology from Western and especially American firms to uh, censor the internet and mobile communications more effectively. So, at some point, I just realized that you know the biggest contribution I can probably make to the field is to actually go and re-examine some of the basic assumptions and see why people like me who could have probably been contributing otherwise chose new media and the internet as the primary venue Uh, and the primary platform for making our contribution and why we missed uh, the possibility that the governments might actually be much more effective in exploiting this space.
0: Well, let's pick up on two or three of those themes there that you just mentioned and that that appear in your book. Um, First, if I understand what you're saying, you think that social media and the internet really aren't uh, intrinsically as powerful tools of liberation as we like to think. And yet, on the other hand, many people would argue that communism in Europe was was brought down, or at least substantially undermined, by samizdat, you know, the underground mm-hmm. literature, Western broadcasting, much of it supported in the in the mm-hmm. day by the Central Intelligence Agency. Um, so why wouldn't free access to information help today, particularly when it has then often support behind it from, say, the U.S. Department of State or NGOs such as mm-hmm. the, the the one you mm-hmm. used to work for? Isn't mm-hmm. freedom of information and 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 dialogue isn't that intrinsically de- you know democratizing and 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 anti-author? Um,
1: I think there is definitely uh, a value to uh, encouraging people to express opinions online, to engage in debate, and to access any information that is available to their counterparts in the West. Uh, This, is, I think, is a valid uh, objective towards which many NGOs and many government entities in the West are working towards. Uh, That said, I think we should not overestimate the uh, contribution that such access to information makes to uh, democratization. And here, I think, much depends on how exactly we want to define uh, what democratization is. Uh, If we are really talking about some kind of regime change, the establishment of free and independent elections with independent observers, we're talking about the establishment of independent media, uh, all of those have very ambitious goals that I do not think are necessarily easily abetted by social media. If we are talking about liberation and democratization in much less ambitious terms, and we are talking about you know, personal liberation, people gaining more autonomy over what they can do, over, you know, what kind of movies they can watch, what kind of literature they can read, you know, over even their ability to learn English uh, or any other language, for that matter, using the internet or Skype or any other tools, there the contribution is, of course, undeniable. The question that I think most utopians have failed so far to address is how... Personal liberation would necessarily lead to the broader social and political liberation, and the assumption has always been uh, that you know as people gain more money. And more and as they acquire the taste of this very comfortable middle class experience in existence, they would also push for political freedoms. So they would inevitably go and, you know, march in the streets and demand that they are represented in their governments by people whom they vote for. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if you really look closely at the last two decades in countries like Russia or China, uh, I'm not sure that that theory actually holds true, in part because both countries now feature very sizable middle classes who are getting wealthier and wealthier, and many of whom are actually comfortable with not participating in politics at all as a price that they are paying for the increased wealth. And the government has very successfully uh, built an ideology in which they have convinced people that not participating in politics is the price that they need to pay for prosperity. And this is the kind of broader intellectual setting in which you need to examine the role of the internet. And if this is the setting with which we begin, then, of course, you need to understand the role that the Internet plays in, you know, pacifying people by giving them access to entertainment that was not available 10 or 15 years ago.
0: Yes, you, you, you actually hint in your book, if I understand it correctly, that maybe governments don't mind the people wasting their time online looking at lolcats and porn and that mm-hmm. sort of thing, that that actually serves the government's interests mm-hmm. uh, by distracting them. Is is the internet the new opiate of the masses? Then is that what you're saying? Uh,
1: I I I think it's it's a theory that we need to consider actually very seriously. And then I I actually think that if you look at the way in which say the Kremlin has uh, learned to manipulate uh, traditional media, you'll discover that you know, much of what appears on mainstream Russian television is trash. (laughs) You know, it's pop culture, it's uh, B-level movies, it's, uh, you know, it's not exactly uh you know uh politicized uh, content that will make people aspire to go and revolt in the streets it's not the same boring programming that people used to watch in the 70s or the 80s i mean based on trash value you know russian reality tv shows are probably way more trashier than their british or american counterparts so there is definitely this huge cultural change and it is with that you know that framework that you need to assess the contribution that is made by the internet. So, you know, what are available options to a young person growing up in Siberia? I mean, if you're really dissatisfied with the government, I mean, traditional routes of escape prior to the internet were what? You are either getting drunk every day and, you know, that's how life ends, or you become politicized and, you know, you join some existing oppositional movement or you just, you know, experience some kind of internal dissent and for the next three decades you live in some kind of internal exile. I mean, I think all of those options are still available now, just that, you know, the internet has probably made the internal exile easier because you can get access to any dissident tax you want, but I think for the vast majority of people, it has also made uh, the entertainment route uh, available, which was not available previously. You know, there was always an important role that boredom played in politicizing people. You know, and making them actually aspire for some kind of change. And I think that boredom is actually very slowly uh, disappearing from the political and social landscape in many of those countries. If you look at what's happening in the Russian blog sphere today um you will see some political acts you will see russian bloggers taking a photo of Vladimir Putin and Dmitry Medvedev talking to each other, and they would, you know, subject it to 500 different versions in Photoshop. So you'll have them having, you know, evil eyes or all sorts of other, you know. But the question you should be asking, whether it's actually uh, preventing many of the same people from engaging in more, traditional political uh, activities or whether it's just a way to blow their steam off and essentially do nothing. And I think that the governments themselves are not that naive. They recognize that there is definitely a value at providing people, you know, with bread, which they do, and circuses, which they also do increasingly with the help of the web. You argue
0: also then, and this perhaps will be of greatest interest to our particular audience, that the social media are a boon to the intelligence services and the police in these Mm. various Mm -hmm. uh, non-democratic countries. In fact, in the book, you've got a wonderful chapter called Why the KGB Wants You to Join Facebook. Mm Mm-hmm. Why does the KGB want people to, <laughs> to join Facebook?
1: Um, well, I, I think also uh, we, we, we have to go back to this sort of set of erroneous assumptions that, you know, utopians made about information, I would say, not just about the Internet. And one of those assumptions, I think, was that uh, authoritarian governments are not interested in uh, letting information flow. Uh, they just want to control everything and just broadcast their own version of events. Actually, don't think that that was ever true in even in stalinist russia i don't think it was ever true in part because governments learn quite a lot from you know the information flaws you know they want to know if again if you look at you know the case of russia kremlin wants to know what's happening in siberia because it does not always trust the people whom it has put in charge of that region so it wants to hear many of this independent opinions so that it can you know Take some measures and control the situation on the ground. So, in other words, by, for instance, reading the content
0: of, mm-hmm. of uh, Twitter feeds or looking at the popular mm-hmm. searches coming out of particular areas, it serves as mm-hmm. a, an independent check on what's going on sort of politically within the various regions of Russia, in your example. Uh, well, is that, I mean, is that it, what you're talking about? It
1: happens both on the micro-level and on the micro-level. So, I mean, yes, the government can learn more about trends, that's for sure. I mean, you can actually go and now with the kind of data uh, available on Facebook, you can actually go and trace very nicely and even track what certain demographic groups think about a particular government policy. So, you know, identifying trends and acting on them is definitely very easy. But I think also on the micro-level, the government can actually go and track the activities of particular dissidents that it doesn't like. So one of the examples I quote in the book is from Belarus, where you know the local uh, KGB service, which you know is still called KGB, uh, is actually uh, browsing through profiles of some of the activists, oppositional activists that they already know, and they're looking at their friends online. And if they discover any of the names that are not in the database yet, they add those names and they start looking at. Up even more people. So, in a sense, it helps them to always know uh, the social uh, you know, media activity of the very people who are opposing the government. Now, of course, you can make an easy argument that, you know, why would the opposition be so stupid as to be doing all of that under the real names? And I think this is uh, a key question. Of course they can be doing all of that anonymously, but doing it under real names and under real identities actually helps them to build a community that takes advantage of the social media. In other words, doing this anonymously online under Reminds the trust that's necessary for the dissidents to operate together. And, and it also doesn't bring the same level of scale. I mean, uh, the whole point of social media is being able to leverage the, you know, the communities that are built on, and that emerge online. You want your Facebook group to exist and have, you know, millions of members so that you can actually go and spread that message. You cannot just do ad hoc groups and ad hoc accounts anytime you need to organize a campaign. So you do need to build trust, and trust is built around real. So, in a sense, uh, you know, the the ability to track social media cancels out its huge mobilization potential. Uh, because, you know, you can only mobilize well if you have real people behind it, but if you have real people behind it, you can actually preempt anything they do by tracking it even before it happens. Can you talk a little bit about some of the
0: measures that the uh, Iranian government used in the wake of the so-called Twitter revolution? And I know mm-hmm. you very much don't mm-hmm. like that term, but mm-hmm. but can you give some some for instances on, on how the Iranian government uh, tried to... Uh, crack down and then seek out and punish
1: the people who'd been involved in the uh, demonstrations there in 2009. Sure. So what happened, uh, I think, is that the Iranian government actually probably deliberately didn't shut down all of Facebook and all of Twitter. They slowed down access to them. They still allowed people to post uh, some messages. So some people did manage to get through. And again, I think that happened in part because there was a huge intelligence value. To the information that was posted to the ground, uh, all about real-time events, but also in terms of uh, court evidence that was actually later introduced in many of the courts. Uh, you know, many Western activists were naive and careless enough to actually start expressing their support to particular Iranian activists, which of course. Uh, was not uh, very helpful because then the government would show up in court and say, hey, look, we have five messages sent to you from people in think tanks in Washington, D.C. That proves you have a connection to them and that you are a spy, right? So there was a lot of uh, that level of evidence which the government was just, you know, presented with, more or less, it was, you know, free present. But the other aspect was that the government began uh, collecting and aggregating all the photo and video evidence that was posted to sites like Flickr and sites like YouTube. And what they later did was that the evidence was to post it all on uh, several government websites. And actually started asking uh, the supporters of the government and any anyone else to identify the people whom they recognized in the photos, and that way they managed to get names of at least forty people whom they previously through did not, crowdsourcing. Uh, so basically. basically, yes. So crowdsourcing. So it's uh, the same technologies that are pioneered by you know Western firms and governments uh, later ended up being used by you know the the authoritarian governments. And by the way crowdsourcing is not the only one which is used by authoritarian governments. I mean, spinning uh, many of the conversations and, uh, you know, infusing propaganda uh, into them is also a technique that many authoritarian governments have learned from Western corporations. Uh, The practice of astroturfing, which, of course, arose uh, in the West, uh, and was practiced mostly, still is practiced by corporations and politicians. Is now very actively practiced by bloggers in uh, Russia and China. And what who, is astroturfing? You'll have to explain that for us. Uh, sure. Well, astroturfing is the practice of uh, a company or a politician uh, hiring, uh, you know, people who would express opinions which are presented as independent ones, but actually paid for by the government or the, uh, you know, the company without ever the. Closing the affiliation. So, what is happening in places like China, Iran, or Russia is that uh, governments directly or indirectly have their supporters uh, basically mask themselves as independent uh, critics and independent bloggers and commentators and uh, try to enter various discussions online that are critical of the government and try to steer them away in directions that are favorable to the government. In the world of espionage, there's the
0: field of covert communications. Mm-hmm. Um, to allow you know intelligence officers to communicate securely with their headquarters without it even being necessarily known, or with their handlers without it even being necessarily mm-hmm. known they're communicating at all. With regard to things like email and web browsing, aren't there also technical tools that activists and dissidents can use to enhance their security in the face of the, the technical surveillance measures that governments can bring to bear?
1: Uh, sure. I mean, there are tools uh, that allow that. Again, it depends on uh who owns the underlying technical infrastructure so in the case of iran you have the iranian revolutionary guards basically owning the main internet service provider in the country uh, you know in which case um, sure you can still encrypt your traffic but you just don't know how deep they have the capacity and the ability to lock into your stream right so in places where ownership of ISPs and governments is separated, you have a little bit more certainty, even though, you know, even in this country, we had the Bush administration reach out to AT&T and essentially, you know, so even democratic governments have the same reach uh, to some of the data. Uh, it is possible to encrypt, of course, your communications uh, and uh, the problem is that uh, many of the stalls are yet not the level of, um, you know, they they cannot be used by consumers easily. So many of the activists and dissidents uh, who are not uh, very, uh, you know, tech-savvy, they end up basically misusing those tools, thinking that they provide the level of anonymity that they don't. You know, it, the way I explain uh, how some of those tools function, it's that, you know, they remove the, uh, whatever address you put on your envelope but if you have, uh, when you're sending a letter, but if you have, uh, you know, <laughs> some paper with a letterhead in your envelope, people will still, you know, figure out what it is you are saying. So some tools do remove the address from the envelope, but they do not destroy the letterhead. So then you need to, you know, in- encrypt it twice, so to say. You have to encrypt the message and then use tools like Tor, which is one of the most popular tools used for uh, for such things to-, to send out your message. The, the basic problem here thing it's, it's not really encryption. It's that, you know, many dissidents actually now want to be public and they want to use these tools to mobilize. And uh, it's, it's this that I find most troubling. And, you know, the whole promise of social media and the Internet so far has been that it will help the dissident movement to reach out to people who are not yet dissidents. So they will go to all those people who are sitting at home quietly and are still hesitating whether to join the movement. And, you know, to do that, you cannot use encrypted communications, you need to be as public as you can. And this is where I think uh, a lot of risks actually occur which are unavoidable.
0: Last question then, and I want to sort of gauge Mm -hmm. how pessimistic we should really be here. Uh, George Orwell's famous line in 1984 was, "If you want a picture of the future, imagine a boot stamping on a human face forever." Is that is that where you go? Is that what you'd say the future holds for us? Thanks to internet and social media, or is there any you know? Is the net upside positive or negative, and how positive or negative uh, yeah. is this in sum?
1: Uh, well i think you know th- that boot will re- remain it will just well we'll learn how to take pleasure in it uh I, I, so i think this is one uh possible uh development i think you know it's basically the merger of you know orwell and huxley which i'm i'm discussing partly in the book um uh, but i think um I, I do have some optimism. Actually, I do think that you can still use new media and the internet to promote democracy, and there are ways in which it can actually enhance the activities of many dissidents and, and, and many uh, human rights activists. The key question to me is how do you do it procedurally? Whether you start by hiring uh, a bunch of very smart techies who know everything about latest technology in Silicon Valley, but who are not aware of the broader geopolitical context and background in which they operate, or whether you actually start with people who are knowledgeable about the regions, who are knowledgeable about the foreign policy of China or Iran, and who know how any action that America takes with regards to the internet is likely to backfire, uh, you know, not just on American internet freedom policy, but on American foreign policy as a whole. I think that in the last one and a half years, two years maybe, uh, the U.S. government has pursued the former option. They got... Uh, after the you know after Obama won the election, they got some really smart technologists who you know thought that they would be able to transform u s foreign policy uh, by knowing very little about foreign policy, but knowing everything that there was to learn about you know silicon Valley and I think that has proved so far um a very costly approach in part because. For example, during the elections in Iran, uh, the State Department famously reached out to Twitter, and they asked them to delay maintenance, which of course was then interpreted by virtually every single newspaper in countries Iran friendly to the U.S. As, as some, you know, collaboration between the two, and some even assumed that, you know, Twitter is just, you know, front company that is doing State Department's bidding in Iran. And I think it's uh, errors like this that uh, the U.S. government needs to avoid in this space. And if they manage to avoid those errors, I do think that there is a value that, you know, the Internet brings. It's just that uh, we shouldn't be excessively optimistic and we should really know the geopolitical environment in which the Internet operates because I think it's geopolitics uh, that will eventually shape uh, its, you know, usefulness to democratization. The book is The Net Delusion, The Dark Side of Internet Freedom. We've been uh,
0: privileged to talk with the author, Yevgeny Morozov. Thank you very much.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you, and we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you, and we'll see you next month.